The phrase, history is human, was coined by two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian David McCulloch. He says, history is about life. It isn't just about dates and quotations from obscure treaties and the like. It's about people. And that's exactly what Cold War Conversations is about. Now, I discovered this phrase listening to the History Daily podcast, presented and narrated by Lindsey Graham. This podcast takes you back in time to explore a momentous moment that happened on this day in history. It uses fully immersive sound design, original music and a compelling narrative style. I really enjoy it and I'm sure you will too. So I am sharing two short Cold War episodes on this bonus episode. If you think you'd enjoy the History Daily podcast, then you can follow the links in the episode notes or search for History Daily podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's shortly before dawn on December 2nd, 1956. A rickety yacht struggles through the choppy waters off the southwest coast of Cuba. Battered by a rough week at sea, the vessel is barely afloat, creaking beneath the weight of its cargo. Men in green military fatigues crowd the deck, their faces pallid with seasickness. There are 82 men in total, packed tightly onto a 50-foot yacht built to accommodate no more than two dozen. Conditions on board are hellish. The men are starving, thirsty, and exhausted. Above all, they're beginning to doubt their leader, a 30-year-old lawyer with a patchy black beard and intense, mournful eyes. He squats at the prow of the yacht, scanning the darkness for signs of land. This lawyer and his armed revolutionaries are on their way to Cuba to overthrow a corrupt military general named Fulgencio Batista, who seized the reins of power in Cuba a few years back. This lawyer already tried to overthrow the general once, But his coup failed, and he was exiled to Mexico. He's been plotting his next attempt ever since. Now, after months of careful planning, this lawyer and his men are on their way back to Cuba to finish what they started and get rid of Batista once and for all. Suddenly, there's a sound of splintering wood as the vessel lurches violently forward, throwing the men to their knees. The yacht has crashed into a mangrove swamp some 30 miles from their intended landing site where reinforcements await their arrival. Left with no choice, the revolutionaries abandon the wreckage, along with their equipment and supplies, and begin the laborious trudge to dry land. With their rifles held above their heads, men wade through muddy water and tangled mangrove roots. Soon, the government will catch wind of the revolutionaries' arrival. They will send troops and fighter jets to crush the insurgency. And by the end of the onslaught, only 20 or so rebels will be alive, scattered throughout the jungle. The world's media will declare the revolution a failure, and its leader, the young lawyer Fidel Castro, will be presumed dead. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. 
On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 2nd, the start of the Cuban Revolution. It's July 24th, 1952, four years before Castro and his rebels land in Cuba. A group of young political dissidents has gathered in a remote farmhouse 20 miles outside the city of Santiago de Cuba in the south of the island. Spread across the kitchen table are plans for a proposed uprising against the government, a dictatorship run by General Fulgencio Batista. The plan suggests that at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, 150 rebels will storm the Moncada Barracks, the second-largest military garrison in Cuba. There, the dissidents will seize weapons before taking control of a nearby radio station from where they will declare a national revolution. But not all the dissidents are on board with the plan. One of them exclaims, this is suicide. You're suggesting we take on the entire army. The incredulous rebel is addressing the plan's architect, a 25-year-old Fidel Castro. The dissidents followed him here to Santiago, believing they were staging a protest against Batista's iron-fisted rule, not declaring war on the military. But Castro stands quietly by the window and listens to their concerns. Eventually, he turns to his followers. He argues that while Batista might have the army, they have an army of citizens ready to fight. All they need are weapons. Weapons that are stashed inside Moncada barracks. Castro launches into a fiery speech, exhibiting the kind of masterful rhetoric for which he will become known. By the end of it, he's convinced the entire room to go ahead with his plan. And two days later, on July 26th, at 5 a.m., 138 rebels drive through the streets of Santiago. At the front of the convoy, Fidel Castro's hands tighten around the steering wheel as the imposing walls of the barracks loom ahead. This is the moment he's been waiting for, a moment he's dreamed about for many years. Castro graduated as a doctor of law in 1949 and established his own legal practice, catering primarily to Havana's working-class districts. As a student, he was influenced by the writings of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. As a working professional, he witnessed the living conditions of the poorest Cubans and came to see Cuba's problems as symptomatic of capitalism's inherent corruption. And so encouraged by the local members of a left-wing political party, Fidel Castro ran for office. He was nominated for the House of Representatives in 1951 and began campaigning for the 1952 congressional elections. But then in May of 1952, General Batista pulled off a successful military coup and canceled the elections, crushing Castro's ambitions. Immediately, Batista set about turning Cuba into a playground for the rich and famous. He established ties with wealthy elites and with organized crime. Encouraged by Batista himself, gambling and drug trafficking thrived. Havana was dubbed the Latin Las Vegas and became a popular vacation destination. While Cuba's poor languish in the slums, Batista lives in opulence. Castro hopes that all that will end today. But as he pulls up to the Moncada barracks, Castro realizes that something isn't right. One of the vehicles in his convoy, the one carrying the bulk of the rebels' weapons, is missing. It must have gotten separated from the convoy, Castro thinks. But it's too late to turn back. The armed guards standing in front of the barracks have already spotted them. Castro realizes it's now or never. He slams his foot on the gas and speeds into the crowd of armed guards. They sound the alarm before the rest of the rebels can get into position, and soon the rebels are surrounded and taking heavy fire. Nine of Castro's rebels are killed in the attack. Nineteen are captured, 
to be tortured and executed. Fidel Castro and his brother Raul manage to escape into the surrounding countryside, but within days, they too are arrested. When news of the soldiers' barbaric treatment of the other captured rebels leaks to the public, there is widespread outcry. Fearing the tide of public opinion, Batista doesn't execute Castro. Instead, he puts him on trial. And there, Castro uses his platform in court to lambast the government to justify his attack on Moncada barracks. And before his sentencing, he declares to a crowd of transfixed reporters, history will absolve me. Castro is sentenced to 15 years behind bars, but many of the people stand with Castro and they make their voices heard. In the end, Batista will bow to public pressure again and free Castro from prison and exile him to Mexico. But there, Castro will regroup with his comrades and begin plotting another coup. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It's July 1955, one year before the Cuban Revolution begins. Fidel Castro is in Mexico City, recruiting new members to his 26th of July movement, named after the date of the attack on Moncada Barracks. On this Sunday afternoon, Castro sits in his apartment and waits for the arrival of a potential new recruit, an Argentinian doctor named Ernesto Che Guevara. Guevara works at a local hospital and is a friend of Castro's younger brother, Raul, who arranged the meeting. At first, Castro isn't sure what to make of Guevara. With his tangled mane of black hair and wild eyes, there's something animalistic about him, something untamed. Guevara's radical Marxism and blistering idealism make Castro look downright conservative, but they're both equally committed to turning Cuba into a socialist republic, and soon the two men become firm comrades. From the cafes and cantinas of Mexico City, Fidel Castro, his brother Raul, Che Guevara, and the rest of the 26th of July movement spend the next year carefully plotting to oust General Batista. Mexico City at this time is a hotbed of left-wing politics, and the movement finds no shortage of willing participants. Castro elicits the help of Alberto Bayo, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War who trains Castro's rebels in guerrilla warfare. They also make contact with other anti-Batista militant groups emerging back in Cuba, establishing a support system on the island. Revolution is in the air. Meanwhile, Batista becomes increasingly paranoid. He cracks down on any perceived insubordination and is intent on stamping out the militant groups that are Castro's support base back home. Castro and his rebels need to move fast. 
but the movement is low on funds, which they need to purchase weapons. So Castro ramps up his fundraising efforts, even touring the United States to find sympathetic donors. Slowly, money starts trickling in, but it's not nearly as much as Castro was hoping for. To launch a successful invasion, Castro needs a ship, and ships are expensive. He reaches out to an arms dealer in Mexico City named Antonio Del Conde, who already supplies the movement with guns. Del Conde invites Castro down to the Mexican port of Tuxpan. He leads Castro down to the harbor and shows him the boat he's managed to purchase with the movement's limited budget. There, bobbing in murky water, is a decrepit 50-foot cabin cruiser, hardly fit for a joyride along the coast, let alone an armed invasion. Painted on the chipped hull is the yacht's name, Grandma, named in honor of the previous owner's grandmother. It's hardly the fearsome warship Castro had hoped for, but he has no other alternative. And so at 2 a.m. on November 25th, 1956, Castro and 81 rebels cram on board the leaky, creaking ship. The weather is atrocious. The sky wails with driving rain and wild winds. But Castro figures this could benefit them. No one would launch an invasion in these conditions. And with good reason. The crossing is disastrous. The yacht springs leaks and suffers countless mechanical failures. Violent gales blow them off course. And in the end, the voyage takes two days longer than expected. Eventually, just after dawn on December 2nd, the rebels wash up in the mangrove swamp, soaking wet and seasick. After wading ashore, they begin the long, grueling hike through the jungle, heading for the cover of the Sierra Maestra Mountains in the east. With their feet finally on land, the rebels pray the worst is behind them, but their troubles are just beginning. It's the morning of December 2nd, hours after the rebels' arrival in Cuba. Fidel Castro and his fellow revolutionaries are hiking through the jungle. With blistered feet and waterlogged boots, it's a laborious trudge and morale is low. After three days, they stop to rest at a grove of trees called Alegria de Pio, just west of the Sierra Maestra Mountains. While his compañeros collapse in exhaustion, Che Guevara walks to the edge of the clearing and leans against a tree chewing a stale cracker. Suddenly, the moment of stillness is interrupted by the crackle of gunfire. The rebels' position has been discovered. Military fighter jets soar overhead, dropping shells on the insurgents' camp. Infantry units hidden in the trees open fire. A bullet strikes Guevara in the neck, sending him to the ground. The other rebels scatter, scrambling for cover. Most will be captured or killed. Castro manages to escape again with two other rebels, and after days of hiding in the countryside, a sympathetic farmer takes them into his home, where they regroup with other rebels who survived the ambush. Among them, Raul Castro and Che Guevara, who survived his injury. Incredibly, this band of just 20 rebels will establish a base in the Sierra Maestra Mountains, and from there they will recruit more fighters and wage unrelenting guerrilla warfare against Batista's troops. And after three years of a grueling war of attrition, they will finally succeed in removing Batista from power. The Cuban Revolution will send shockwaves across the world. By declaring Cuba a communist country, Castro will bring the Cold War to the Western Hemisphere and kick off a decades-long conflict with the United States. After his death in 2016, 
Castro's poor human rights record and authoritarian style of rule will dominate any assessment of his legacy. But what cannot be denied is that the revolution that began so inauspiciously on December 2nd, 1956, changed the political landscape of not just Latin America, but of the entire world. Next on History Daily, December 3rd, 1984, the city of Bhopal in central India suffers the worst industrial accident in history. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. early morning, December 21st, 1968, at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Bill Anders, a 35-year-old rookie astronaut, sits in his spacecraft, the Apollo 8. Anders flexes his fingers in the stiff gloves of his pressure suit. He is uncomfortable. He's been strapped to his chair for almost three hours as the crew outside work on the rocket that will launch the Apollo 8 into space. Beside him are two other astronauts, Mission Commander Frank Borman and Command Module Pilot Jim Lovell. Their mission is a historic one. They will be the first men to leave Earth's orbit and the first to journey to the far side of the moon. But before they can achieve their mission, they have to get off the launch pad, and that's perhaps the most dangerous part. Anders is tired of waiting, but his fellow astronauts, Borman and Lovell, know that this is all part of the process. The two of them have been to space together before on a mission a few years back, But this mission is different, and all three astronauts know it. The Saturn V rocket that will take them into space is the biggest and most powerful ever made. It's as tall as a 36-story building and is filled with hundreds of thousands of gallons of liquefied fuel. Today will be only the third time a Saturn V rocket has taken off, and the first time the rocket will carry a crew. As the countdown enters its final moments, Anders' eyes flick over the constellation of dials and switches on the instrument panel in front of him. He quickly scans for any last-minute errors, any warning lights. But there's nothing, and so the mission will continue. At nine seconds before launch, the Saturn V engines roar to life. The cabin shakes around Anders and the other two astronauts as the rocket blasts out seven and a half million pounds of thrust. The metal arms that hold the rocket to the launch pad detach, and for a moment, Saturn V rocket is free, standing alone on a ball of flame. This is the point of greatest peril. If the engines fail now, the entire rocket will collapse to the Earth and explode. But then, like a skyscraper hurling itself into the sky, the Saturn V rocket surges upward, clears the launch pad, and soars into the clouds. Apollo 8 and its crew are on their way into space. Hundreds of thousands of people watch the launch on the ground in Florida, and millions more watch on television sets around the world. 1968 has been a year of violence and discord in America and overseas. There have been assassinations, riots, and wars. For many of the people watching this momentous event, the launch of Apollo 8 and its daring mission into space provides something that has been desperately missing, hope. Hope. 
From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 21st. Apollo 8 goes to the moon. It's September 12, 1962, six years before the launch of Apollo 8. In the bright Texas sun, John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, steps up to a podium and looks out at the sea of faces before him. 40,000 people have packed into a football stadium at Houston's Rice University to hear the president speak. He's come to tell them why he believes America should land a man on the moon. America is losing the space race. Their Cold War rivals, the Soviet Union, shocked the world in 1957 by launching the satellite Sputnik into orbit. Then in April 1961, they beat the Americans once again by sending the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin. For Kennedy, who has only been president a few months, it was a national humiliation, and one he took personally. Previously, he had shown little interest in the American space program. But after Gagarin's flight, that all changed. If there was going to be a space race, Kennedy was determined that the United States should win it. The Soviet Union, though, had a head start. So any goal the president set had to be ambitious enough that America would have time to catch up. And that's why he resolved to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. But since announcing this plan to a joint session of Congress in 1961, Kennedy has struggled to win over the public, to explain why this matters and why it must be done now. So he has come to Rice University in Houston, Texas, to address these students and the nation. The government is building a new manned spacecraft center in Houston. In his speech, Kennedy ties the construction of that center into Houston's history as a frontier town. According to the president, the space program is the latest incarnation of America's pioneering spirit. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It's a romantic, patriotic vision and a compelling one. Ultimately, Kennedy's optimistic vision will inspire the public's support. In September 1963, the Houston Space Center opens. Two months later, however, on another visit to Texas, President Kennedy is assassinated as he rides his motorcade through the city of Dallas. But the pioneering spirit he spoke of at Rice University will not die with him. It's August 1968, five years after President Kennedy's assassination. At the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, engineer George Lowe hurries down a corridor to a conference room. Lowe is manager of the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office. It's his job to make sure the new vessels that will take men to the moon are ready to fly. And he's just come back from vacation with an idea that could save the Apollo space program. Kennedy's goal of putting a man on the moon by 1970 is hugely ambitious. NASA, the American space agency, is well-funded, but their Apollo space program has been plagued by technical problems and human tragedy. Just the year before, on January 27, 1967, Three astronauts lost their lives in a fire during a routine test on the launch pad. The accident set the Apollo program back by months and resulted in a massive redesign of the spacecraft. It was George Lowe who led those efforts. 
There are three major components to an Apollo flight. First, the Saturn V rocket that launches the astronaut's spacecraft out of Earth's orbit. Second, the command and service module that carries them towards the moon. And third, the lunar module, nicknamed the LEM, that takes the astronauts down to the surface of the moon. NASA has had trouble with all three components. But right now, it's the LEM that has George Lowe worried. The Apollo 8 mission is meant to be the LEM's first test flight. On this mission, NASA has planned to test the module's capabilities in an Earth orbit. The Apollo 8 mission is meant to be the LEM's first test flight. But the lunar module is nowhere near ready. George Lowe knows that if NASA is forced to delay the Apollo 8 mission, all subsequent missions will also be pushed back. And if that happens, there's a real danger NASA will miss President Kennedy's end-of-the-decade deadline. So Lowe sits down to meet with other senior staff in Houston to lay out his new plan. Instead of waiting for the LEM to be ready, Lowe proposes something even more ambitious than the original mission. Lowe suggests that they send the Apollo 8 command module, without the LEM, on a mission to the moon. The astronauts won't be able to land on the moon, but they will be able to navigate to it and maneuver in and out of lunar orbit. As Lowe explains, such a mission would be invaluable. It would prove that NASA can make the calculations necessary to fly to the moon, and it would keep the Apollo program on target for a moon landing in the summer of 1969. Lowe's plan is approved, but there are many who doubt it will succeed. The Apollo 8 command module has flown just once with astronauts on board, and even then, only in Earth's orbit. Now, NASA wants to send three astronauts all the way to the moon. It's risky. Even the slightest miscalculation could kill the crew. And another NASA tragedy will not only mean missing Kennedy's deadline, it would jeopardize the entire American space program altogether. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. It's December 22nd, 1968, 18 hours after Apollo 8 blasted off from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. On board the cramped spaceship, astronauts Bill Anders and Jim Lovell try to keep quiet as they test out navigation systems. Floating in zero gravity beneath their feet is Mission Commander Frank Borman. It's his shift to rest, but Borman can't sleep. The constant radio chatter and the hum of instruments and machinery is keeping him awake. And now he's beginning to feel sick. Later, it will be determined that Borman is suffering from space adaptation syndrome, a condition that affects one in three people in zero gravity. But in this moment, Borman has no idea what's ailing him. So he forces his eyes shut and tries to sleep it off. The astronauts are only a third of the way to the moon. They have already traveled further in space than any other human beings in history. And through the tiny windows of their spacecraft, they are the first people to have seen the whole of the Earth at once. The men didn't expect to be part of the Apollo 8 mission. Their original assignment was Apollo 9, due early the following year. But when lunar module production fell behind schedule and NASA changed the parameters of the mission, the crews of Apollo 8 and 9 were switched. Borman and his men had just 16 weeks to train for their new assignment. At first, Bill Anders was disappointed with the swap. He was a lunar module pilot on a mission without a lunar module. But in the weeks building up to the launch, Anders realized what an incredible opportunity Apollo 8 was. If all went well, he would be among the first three people ever to leave Earth behind and see the dark side of the moon. 
but not all is going well. Today, as he floats in zero gravity, Anders hears a retching noise and looks down as a glob of Frank Borman's vomit drifts past his chin. Anders and Lovell help their shivering commander to his chair and strap him in. Lovell and Anders clean up as best they can while they debate whether to tell Mission Control in Houston. Borman insists absolutely not. He doesn't want anyone to know. But if Lovell and Anders fall sick too, the whole mission will be in danger. They have to tell Houston. A hurried radio conference is held between the doctors on the ground and the astronauts on board. They decide Borman has either a 24-hour stomach sickness or a bad reaction to a sleeping pill. Either way, the mission will continue. It's Christmas Eve, 1968. After three days journeying through space, Apollo 8 has finally reached the moon. On board the spacecraft, the astronauts open a locker and dig out a handheld camera in order to give the world its first look at the moon close up through a live television broadcast. It's been 86 hours since Apollo 8 left the Kennedy Space Center. Traveling through space at almost 4,000 feet per second, the spacecraft needed a precisely calculated engine burn to slow down enough to enter the moon's orbit. Too short a burn, and the ship might careen off into space. Too long, and they risk becoming another crater on the moon's surface. Luckily, the precise calculations did not fail them. A four-minute and seven-second-long burn slowed down the Apollo 8 command module just enough. Now, in lunar orbit, Apollo 8 skims over the surface of the moon some 60 miles up. Over 200,000 miles away on Earth, hundreds of millions of people watch as the astronauts describe what they are seeing through the ship's tiny windows. For Frank Borman, the moon is an expanse of nothing. Jim Lovell calls the vast loneliness he sees below awe-inspiring. And to Bill Anders, the moon and the stars beyond seem stark and forbidding. But for all three men, the most spectacular sight of all is Earth, a glowing orb of color and life floating in endless black. Near the end of their broadcast, Anders reads from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The astronauts take turns reading verses until Borman ends the broadcast with these words. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good Earth. By the end of their mission, the crew of Apollo 8 will have journeyed farther than any other humans in history. They will have seen the far side of the moon and taken more than 800 pictures of the surface. But it will be their message to the good Earth that will be remembered forever. It's December 27, 1968, six days after Apollo 8 left Earth. In the skies over the North Pacific, three bright red and white parachutes burst open. The Apollo 8 spacecraft slung underneath sways down toward the sea and splashes gently into the waves. The outside of Apollo 8 is scorched from its trip through Earth's atmosphere. But the astronauts inside, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, are alive and well. Their mission has been a complete success. The navigation to the moon and entry into lunar orbit proved NASA's technology worked. It's a huge step towards meeting President Kennedy's ambition of putting an American on the moon by 1970. And indeed, just seven months later, in July 1969, 
Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin become the first men to walk on the moon. But Apollo 8 is more than just a technical triumph. People all around the world followed Borman, Lovell, and Anders from the moment they took off to the moment they splashed down in the Pacific. One in four people on the Earth tuned in for their famous Christmas Eve broadcast. And for many of these viewers, 1968 was a difficult year. The civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was shot dead in April. Politician Bobby Kennedy, younger brother of the assassinated President John Kennedy, was killed in June. And in Vietnam, America was on the verge of losing its unpopular war with the North Vietnamese. But for a brief few days in December, people across the world looked up to follow the journey of three men, and through them saw the world in a whole new way. On his return, the commander of Apollo 8, Frank Borman, will receive countless messages of congratulations. But there will be one telegram he will remember above all, an anonymous note that reads simply, Thank you. You saved 1968. Next on History Daily, December 22nd, 1894, a scandal known as the Dreyfus Affair begins when a Jewish captain in the French army is convicted of treason for allegedly passing military secrets to the Germans. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by William Simpson. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.